Lisa Brennickmeyer is the founder and chief purpose officer of Walking with Purpose. A convert to Catholicism, Lisa created her first Bible study in 2002 out of a desire to see Catholic women come to know Christ personally. In 2008, Walking with a Purpose became a fully independent nonprofit organization with a 501c3 status and a mission of helping every Catholic woman and girl in America open her heart to Jesus Christ. Today, over 40,000 women, young women, and middle school girls participate with WWP, Walking with a Purpose, each year. Bible study programs take place both in and outside the parish, setting in 44 states, in Canada and beyond. Lisa has authored 16 Walking with a Purpose Bible study courses, which have received the imprimatur through Archbishop Lori of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Her first book, Walking with a Purpose, Seven Priorities That Make Life Work, has sold over 80,000 copies. In addition, Lisa has written two devotionals, a prayer journal, and developed a program for middle school girls called Blaze with its own set of course offerings. Each of these Walking with Purpose offerings cultivate a spiritual growth within a woman's life by helping to integrate scripture reading and a personal relationship with God into her everyday experience. We encourage you to stop by the Walking with a Purpose booth and check them out right here behind this wall. Lisa has been recognized by the Catholic Leadership Institute as a national Catholic leader and was presented by, at the USCCB Convocation of Catholic Leaders. She has presented the unique model of walking with a purpose at national conferences throughout the country, and today we get to see her here, yay, and has been a guest on a number of radio, televisions, and podcast shows. Lisa holds a Bachelor's in Arts in Psychology from St. Olaf's College and is pursuing her Master's Degree in Theology from Franciscan University of Studentville. She and her husband, Leo, have seven children and three grandsons. When does she sleep? (laughs) They currently reside in St. Augustine, Florida. We are excited. We are going to listen about walking to a purpose. Let's welcome Lisa. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, what a joy to be with you and what a gift it was to hear your wonderful talk. And I just kept thinking, I wish I had had that 20 years ago when I was first starting out as a Catholic. I really, I just, you gave me a fresh vision of Jesus and the way he protects and fights for us. I really appreciate that. Thank you. So I'd love to pray with you all as we begin. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this place. We open up our hearts wide to you. And we invite you into the depths of our being. Lord God, we want to hear your voice loud and clear. Our heads are full of so many other voices and so often they crowd out yours. So quiet our hearts. Quiet the voices in our heads so that we can hear a razor sharp message that you have crafted just for each and every one of your daughters here today. 
I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, that they would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, and you would take this message and send it out, turn it, change it, so that it reaches people's hearts, so that they hear the encouragement or the exhortation or whatever it is that they need to hear from you, because in you we live and move and have our being. We rely on you for every breath. And so I just pray that you would be very present to us today, that we would sense your presence. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I want to talk to you today about how we can continue to say hallelujah anyway, despite our circumstances. And I wonder, as I look at you all, what is it that brings you peace? I know something that brings me a great deal of peace. It was when I have all my children underneath one roof. I know where they are geographically. I know that they're safe. And I love it then when they wake up and they all get along with one another. I love it when our family group chat is full of harmony. I don't know how many of you have big families with adult children. Um, Do any of you have a group chat that you all are on? Okay. I don't know about you, but on the one hand, I'm so pleased that my whole family talks to each other on the group chat. That's really beautiful. But maybe in your family, like everybody in your family has the same political views. And so your family group chat is just a place of peace and harmony. Well, not so much in the Brennemeyer family. So our family group chat, I'll be honest, it causes me a tremendous amount of anxiety. And if any of you have got one of these family group chats going on and every once in a while people come up with the real zingers and you start to get conflict in your own family on your phone and it's just blowing up, I want to tell you what saves the day, what has saved the day for our family. And that would be Wordle. Have any of you heard of Wordle? Okay, for whatever reason, my whole family's gotten into Wordle, and the minute somebody says something that's a little too spicy and everybody knows, oh, this one just got offended, someone will flip up their Wordle score and everybody settles down and they all start one after the other. So it's been a huge help to us. So we can lose our peace in all sorts of different ways. And when I say that what gives me peace is knowing all my people are together under one roof, I know where they are, I know they're safe, we're all getting along with each other, You can know that in my current stage as a mother, that's very rare for that to be my set of circumstances. We've got four adult children. They're spread all throughout the country. Two are married. Those are the ones that have our grandkids. And then I've got three at home. So at any given moment, I don't really know where everyone is. And it reminds me of a specific phone call I got a number of years ago that really brought on quite a bit of anxiety and threw our family a little bit off kilter. So I was out to dinner with my husband and with some friends, and we were visiting, and his phone rang, and he actually answered the phone, which we all know is very rude to do when you are out to dinner with friends. And I could tell it was not an emergency because he was talking to our son, and they were really chit-chatting. And so I was apologizing to our friends, saying, I'm so sorry, I don't know why it is that he is continuing to have this conversation when the phone got passed to me. And so I'm thinking it's our son, Johnny, and so I answer. But the voice on the phone wasn't my son, Johnny's. It was actually a woman's voice. And she said to me, hey, this is Katy Perry, and I'm in Times Square with Johnny. So I knew it wasn't, of course. I knew exactly where Johnny was. Johnny was at college. It was a Thursday night. Johnny surely was studying. So I said to the person on the voice, on the phone, this is not funny. Put Johnny on the phone. Obviously, you're not Katy Perry. I want to talk to Johnny. So the phone did get passed, but it didn't get passed to Johnny. It got passed to some other man. 
And this man said, hey, this is Lionel Richie. I'm in New York City with Johnny. And I said, Lionel Richie. And I said out loud, and our friend across the table said to me, Lionel Richie is dead. And now can I just say that the current copy of People Magazine was not on the newsstands, and I actually believed our friend. So I said into the phone, listen, I grew up in the 80s, so I would recognize Lionel Richie's voice, besides which Lionel Richie is dead. This is not him. Put Johnny on the phone. And then this voice started singing, hello, you know, the song. And I'm like, what on earth is going on? And the phone went dead. But within just a second, it rang again. And this time it was a FaceTime call. So I took the call. And in those seconds that I saw it, it appeared to me to be an American Idol logo and Ryan Seacrest standing there with my very tall son, Johnny, standing next to him. But then the image disappeared almost before I had seen it. And then the phone was just dead. So I said to my husband and to the couple who had carried on in their own conversation, I'm like, you know, I'm actually not super sure that Johnny is in Massachusetts at college right now. And um, I think Johnny might actually be in New York. And so they started laughing at me. I'm like, get out Life 360. Let's look at it on the phone. That's a very handy thing. You can locate your people wherever they are. And sure enough, Johnny was not at Holy Cross. Johnny was in Times Square. So it's kind of a funny story, right? But I just want to say for the record... It's super helpful that you can know where your child is, right? Just as a starting point, we like to know where our people are. And another helpful thing is that when you tell your college freshmen that under no circumstances may they audition for The Voice during their freshman year of college, that they also are able to deduce that you also meant American Idol, right? Yeah, not so much. So that year, really, that spring, I'm... Um, was a pretty tough one for me, to be honest. It was fun, of course, to have him on the show. We had lots of trips out to L.A. But at the same time, there was a lot of underlying anxiety because I really felt like my son's head was in the mouth of a lion the whole time, and I was constantly plagued by thoughts of what if. You know, the older our kids get, the less and less we can control. You all know that. I know that. That's just the deal. And it can produce a tremendous amount of anxiety in our hearts. So what I found during that time was I had to surrender Johnny over and over again. And some days that was easier to do than others. Anxiety has slammed into my family more times than I can count, even though I stood at the door and I started praying that it wouldn't when I was still a senior in college. And I want you to think about that. That's a long time to have been specifically praying that certain things would not cross the threshold of your home. The reason I started praying so early in such a specific way is I was engaged my senior year of college, and I was engaged to a wonderful man, but in his family there was a lot of mental illness, and I could see the havoc that that had caused his family. And so I started praying my senior year that that would not be our story that we would be protected from the sorts of things that I had seen, that somehow I could be a good enough mom, right, that I could get ahead of whatever might hit us and that we could have a very different way of dealing with it all. I prayed that God would prevent any of it from impacting my home. I was determined that it would not, not on my watch. And around that time, I came upon a passage of scripture, and it comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, verse 6. And it says this, Upon your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. 
All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. So the job of these watchmen was to stand on the walls, the walls of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was surrounded by walls, and they were to stand there with a trumpet, and they were to be scanning the horizon, always looking for any threat, always looking for any sign of disturbance or a scheme of the enemy. And if they saw anything, they were to blow their trumpets so that help would come. And I've wondered if that verse was in the mind of John Paul II toward the end of his life when he went to Lourdes for the 150th anniversary of Mary's visitation to St. Bernadette. Now, most of the reporters who were there were reporting much more on his frail health. They were talking a lot about the suffering that he was enduring and the fact that he was continuing to step out and serve. And unfortunately, so many of the reporters then missed what were some of Pope John Paul II's final words to women. And in that little speech that he made in Lourdes, he gave a call to us all. He called out for us to join a mission. And I want to share what his quote is. It's a very special woman for women, a very special mission for women. And what he said is that we are called to be witnesses of the essential values which are seen only with the eyes of the heart. And he said, to you women falls the task of being sentinels of the invisible. To you, O women, falls the task of being sentinels of the invisible. What does that mean? Well, a sentinel is a person who stands guard, who stands watch, especially a soldier standing guard at a point of passage. And the invisible, of course, is that which is not perceptible to vision. That's what, it's something that's hidden. It's something that's hard to see. So I accepted the mission of being a sentinel of the invisible in my family. I vowed to notice the things that others might miss, to be aware of the critical things that were going on deeper down that are only seen with the eyes of the heart. And I answered the call to be a watchman on the walls surrounding my family, And I blew my trumpet to the Lord often, whenever we needed help. I was aware of the schemes of the enemy, and as I looked out, there were plenty of disturbances that came. And I knew the right thing to do. It was to call for help. And I have determined not to shy away from hard things, to lean into the issues of the heart that aren't always visible to the eye, but are going on in hidden ways. And there's been a lot. There's been a lot of that in my family, a lot to navigate on the heart level. My family has lived through the experience of depression, of panic attacks, of anxiety, of cutting, of suicidal thoughts, sexual brokenness, psychiatrists, psychologists, medication, darkness. And if any of you are sitting here today, struggling with any of those things in your family, and feeling as if you were alone, I want you to know you are not, and that that is a lie from the pit of hell, and the loneliness that comes along with the thought that you were alone, and that kind of suffering is debilitating. And if you are sitting here today shocked that someone who has given her life to Christ who has served him the way that I have done, would have these sorts of struggles. 
then let me assure you, this life is a battlefield, and God's servants face the fiercest of battles. So the question that I want to talk about today is how do we remain faithful to God to answer that call to be a sentinel of the invisible when our anxiety feels overwhelming, when what we really want to do actually is to cover our eyes and to escape? The life of a sold-out Christian is not one of comfort. In the words of Pope Benedict, he said, you were not made for comfort, you were made for greatness. And it is most often in the crucible of suffering that a warrior is formed. And I have found that to be the case in my own life. I've answered God's call to be a sentinel of the invisible, to be a watchman on the wall for my family. And I have stood with my trumpet in hand and I have called for help many, many times. And what I've said to him is I am pleading with you to rescue me and my loved ones from the battlefield. And this is how he has answered that plea. God has chosen not to rescue me from what I feared most, but to rescue me through it. And I'm going to share with you what I've learned on that journey. And these lessons are the things that have allowed me and helped me to persevere. They've prevented me from quitting a million and one times when that's exactly what I wanted to do, from giving up. So if you are a weary warrior today, I want you to know that I've written these words for you. And my prayer is that they will help you to find the strength to press on no matter what it is that you are facing. Because I know that each one of you has a story. And your story matters. If we were to have the opportunity for each one of us to share the stories, the things right now, in this moment, that we are carrying on our hearts, I think all of our stories would just take each other's breath away as we just became more aware of what we all face day in and day out. There is a lot of anxiety in this room. There are a lot of worries in this room. And then there are precious people sitting in this room who are dealing with anxiety disorders that are just the next level beyond. And all of it matters. All of you matter. Recent research shows us that the levels of anxiety are four times higher today than they were before COVID. And the rates of anxiety before COVID were actually alarming and extremely high. Anxiety disorders affect one in eight children and 18% of adults, which means that if you do not struggle with anxiety, somebody close to you no doubt does. And I know that this is a profound issue, and the questions surrounding it are not easily answered. But I do believe there are steps that we can take to reduce anxiety in our lives, and there's a change in perspective that each one of us can make that will help us to not be so afraid of it. And this is critical. Because I believe that our fear of anxiety is a big part of what the trouble is. It's blocking our trust in God. But before I delve into this topic, I want to acknowledge that there is a level of struggle with anxiety that is beyond the scope of this talk. Most people who struggle with anxiety significantly wait an average of six years before they go and they get help. And that really breaks my heart. 
because there is help available. And my prayer for all of us is that we would not wait so long because as we wait, the problem grows. And there are times when therapy and medication is needed. And there is absolutely no shame in that. Just think about Jesus going to the cross. And when Simon of Cyrene came and offered to help him, did Jesus say, you know, know what, that's really all good. I got it. Like, this is my problem, right? I got to carry this one all the way by myself. If Jesus himself accepted help when it was offered, why on earth do we think that we don't need it or that there's some shame in accepting that kind of help? There's no shame in it. In fact, there's wisdom in accepting it. So what I'm sharing today in no way is meant to replace professional help. But what exactly is anxiety? I think a great definition of it comes from Dr. Gregory Popcat, and he defines it in this way. He says, anxiety is a physiological and a psychological response to the perception that for some reason we are not safe. Our physical, psychological, relational, or spiritual well-being is in jeopardy. Anxiety is meant to be a sign that we are facing imminent danger and that we should prepare to fight off the threat, flee from it, or freeze, and just hope that it goes away. So I want you to remember two important points about that definition, because I'm going to circle back to them later. One of them is that anxiety kicks in when we feel that we are not safe. And the second is that anxiety is meant to be a sign that we are in imminent danger. So as we delve into this topic, we are going to root ourselves in scripture as opposed to rooting ourselves in psychology. And so I am wondering how many Walking With Purpose women we've got in the house today. Okay. And then I also want to know if we've got any people in the house who grew up Baptist. All right. I expect all of those people who just raised their hands to have their Bible with them. I really hope you brought your Bible because we're going to crack it open together. And what I want you to do is open up your Bible right to the middle, to the Psalms, and put a marker in it. I want you to put a marker in Psalm 124. I'm going to pop around a little bit. Um, I'm going to get to Psalm 124. We're going to look at something there. And then we're going to also um, look at some other verses around it. So we're going to come here today, you know, not for a lesson in psychology. None of you came here for that. Um, We've come here because we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, right? And so we're going to delve into his word because this is where we get to know God and we hear his voice. And what we find in scripture is an invitation to bring our whole self to God. This is warts and all religion that we find here. We're invited to bring the mess of who we are, our emotions as is to him. And we can see this most clearly in the book of Psalms. And I love the way the Psalms are described by Eugene Peterson. And he said, there is no literature in all the world that is more true to life and more honest than the Psalms. For here we have warts in all religion, every skeptical thought, every disappointing venture, every pain, every despair that can be lived, We can find it here integrated into a personal living relationship with God. So there are 150 psalms in the Bible, and in the middle of it is a special group of psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. So if you've got your Bible open to Psalm 124, you might notice that you see the big number, and up in the corner from it, do you see the words, a song of ascents? So this is significant because there are only 15 psalms in the Bible that have that label. 
And the word there, beginning in Psalm 120 and going through Psalm 134, if you want to make a little study of them. And the word ascent, so songs of ascent, means to go up. So it gives us the idea of being on a journey, of moving up to a higher place spiritually. That's what these psalms are meant to help us do. And these psalms were actually songs that were sung by the Israelite people as they took a journey, as they went on the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. So they were sung three times a year during the time of annual feasts. So this was a really big deal to the Jewish people that they needed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. And we see the commandment for it in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 16 through 17. What it says is three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose. That was Jerusalem at the temple at the feast of unleavened bread at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. So these three great feasts were actually called the pilgrimage feasts. And so it was a time when the people had to obey God, they had to go on pilgrimage, and they had to go to Jerusalem for the the feasts. Now, you may be wondering, what does all of that have to do with us today? What does their call to go on pilgrimage have to do with us sitting here in the 21st century? Well, each and every one of us, too, is called to set our hearts on a pilgrimage. And I wonder on your journey that you are on right now where your heart is. I wonder if you need a new song of ascent to be released in your heart, if you need something to lift you up. Perhaps you are tired and weary, and the pace that you are going at is unhealthy, and you know it but you don't know how to get out of it. So you just keep thinking, if I just go a little bit faster, maybe somehow I will catch up. If that's where you're at today, God is here. He's bending down to you and offering you his hand and inviting you to ascend and to come to a new place, a place where you can encounter him personally and quietly in that place of need. And perhaps where you are at on the journey is you're sitting here and you are feeling alone. You're feeling displaced. You're feeling rejected. You don't feel like you belong. Home to you doesn't seem to give the same feeling that other people have when they talk about home. You know, it's interesting. The Psalms of Ascent were sung by the pilgrims going to Jerusalem, but they were also sung at another time in the Israelites' history. And that's when they were returning home from their time in captivity. They had been captives in Babylon for 70 years. And these very songs were the ones that they sang as they were finding their way back home. Are you longing to find your way home? If that is the case, I want to assure you that you belong here. I wonder if there's anyone sitting in this room who's kind of looking around going, well, I think a lot of these other people belong here. They seem to know what to do during Mass. They had all this stuff down. Or or they look like they've got their act together. Or I bet their family is pretty cleaned up. And if they knew, if they knew the stuff going on with me, you know, they belong. I don't belong here. If that's what you're thinking, I want to call that out. For the lie that it is. You belong here. There is a place for you here. There is a seat at the table for you no matter your past, no matter what's going on in your present, no matter what you're afraid of. You belong here. 
So you begin your, your pilgrimage from a place of belonging. And this is not something earned. This is something that is bestowed on you because you are a beloved daughter of God. And there is protection over you on this journey, but it does not exempt you from anxiety. Oftentimes, anxiety is going to accompany you on the journey, on the pilgrimage. But my prayer is that it would not drag you off the path. That battle to stay on the road, to continue on your pilgrimage, actually takes place up in your mind. So what I want to do today is highlight three critical perspectives that we need to have, that we need to continuously remind ourselves of if we want to remain faithful. And the first is this. This earth is not your home. There are two different approaches to life. One is one that says, I am living my life on a pilgrimage. And the other is one that says, no, 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 it's not really about a journey. I'm not on a pilgrimage. What it's about is the here and now. It's about grabbing hold of and gaining whatever pleasure I can get here. Because once I die, it's all over. What is the truth? The truth is that our time on earth is so short when it's compared to eternity. We are here not to experience as much pleasure as we can, but to love and to make choices that impact our eternity in a very positive way. Our choices here determine where we spend eternity, and this requires that we have a long-term focus. So when you think of your current circumstances that are getting you down and are discouraging and are overwhelming, what I want you to remind yourself is this. You are just passing through. I want you to say to yourself, I am just passing through. I am just passing through. I am not stuck. I am moving forward. That is the truth. And what we read in Psalm 84, verses 6 to 8, are these words, Blessed are the men and women who find refuge in you, God, in their hearts are pilgrim roads, and they will go from strength to strength and see the God of gods on Zion. This is a call for us to have pilgrim roads in our hearts, a highway in our hearts that is taking us to see the God of gods in Zion, in heaven, our true home. Scripture promises us that if we will grab hold of this perspective, this eternal perspective that doesn't say everything is like here and now, but has a long-term focus, that we will go from strength to strength. So where are we going to end up? Where is it that we're heading? Well, we hear about it a little bit in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and it starts out by describing where we are not going. And I'm starting in verse 18 and reading verse 19 as well. So this is where we are not going. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers entreat that no further messages be spoken to them. That's not where you're going. What is that a description of? That's a description of Mount Sinai. When Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments, and his face was glowing, and when he would come down and communicate with the people, and they would hear the rumblings of God in the thunder, and they would just be like, don't even talk to us. We'd rather just hear from you, Moses. They approached Mount Sinai with terror. The thought of approaching God was an absolutely awful thought. 
Okay, my friends, that is not the mountain that's being talked about, about where we're going. Where are we going? We find that out just a little bit later in chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. And it says, but you are going to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, that sounds a little scary, but keep reading, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And how are we going to be made perfect? We find out in verse 24, because of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That is the mountain we are going to. And when we get there, when we approach God, we're going to be approaching him, and we're going to be approaching the heavenly Jerusalem, heaven itself, with a spirit of gratitude and awe, not one of fear. As we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we're invited to confidently approach the throne of grace. Why can we do that? We find the answer in Titus 3, 5. Well, not because of any righteous deeds we have done, but because of his mercy. And so when we get there, When we get to heaven, we're going to be greeted by an assembly of angels, by fellow Christians, but most importantly, by the Lord himself. So how does all of this apply to anxiety? Remember the definition earlier that I gave, that anxiety is meant to be a sign that we are facing imminent danger. And I want to ask you, are most of you in this moment facing imminent danger? What are the things that we are afraid of? Because I would like to propose that we are most scared of the wrong things. We're scared of whether or not the job is secure. We're scared that our reputation is going to be tarnished and people won't like or respect us. We're scared that our level of comfort and health might change. We're scared that our finances are going to take a turn for the worse. We're scared that our children aren't happy. We're scared that our marriages might fail and we would be left alone. And these are not small things. Let's say the words. We look at people we love and we're afraid of divorce. We're afraid of being cheated on. We're afraid of mental illness. We're afraid of suicide. We're afraid of cancer. We're afraid of bankruptcy. But what are most people not afraid of? Eternity. And this is actually because either A, they choose not to think about it, or B, they have an inaccurate understanding of what it's going to be like. And as a result, they live in the here and now. And this life right now is all that matters. And this way of thinking, I would like to propose to you, is actually the true threat. That is something that actually puts us in imminent danger. Because if we buy into that perspective, then the enemy might succeed in getting us to take our eyes off of who we are and why we are here and where we are going. Is it possible that we are most afraid of the wrong things? All too quickly, we lose sight of the truth that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, which says, This slight and momentary affliction, 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, please hear me. These verses are not saying that your suffering and your story do not matter. Or that God's perspective on all of that is that it's no big deal. What he is saying is that none of the things that you are enduring and facing are without purpose. What he is saying is there is not a single thing you are facing right now that he is not in control of. And what he is saying is that this present suffering is not all that there is. This is not the end of the line. You are not going to be stuck here. In the words of C.S. Lewis, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the promises of the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires too weak, not too strong, because we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And this brings me to the second perspective that we need to grab hold of. The second is this. God is on our side, and this makes all the difference. So now I want you to open up if you've had your Bibles. Now we are going to do Psalm 124, our Psalm of Ascent. So please read with me. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. But blessed be God who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. And our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The psalmist is actually describing what so many of us are feeling, right? How many of you have felt that your circumstances are literally going to swallow you up? How many of you have felt helpless, like you're just going to be swept away by a wave of the next thing that unexpectedly comes your way? And some of you are facing those kind of circumstances today, not in spite of the fact that you serve God, but precisely because you have stepped up and you are serving God. Okay, if you've got a blue shirt on today, right? But you know what? I know people here are serving in all sorts of ways, all sorts of hidden ways. The way that you're serving God might be so hidden that people closest to you don't even see it, but the enemy sees it. He sees your selflessness. He sees your yes. He sees your fiat. He sees the things you're willing to do that other people aren't willing to do, and he sees you're not necessarily getting accolades for it, right? But he sees you doing it anyway. Anytime you set to go outside of yourself, to choose to push against the natural selfishness that we all have, to serve, to love, and to do it in the hard places, you know you have got a massive target on your head. And the enemy looks at you and goes, that is a dangerous woman. 
That is the kind of woman who can change the world. That's the kind of woman who can change her marriage, her family, her community, her church. The ripple effects can start to go on and on. So don't you think he's going to do all that he can do to kick you when you're down, to discourage you? If things heat up for you, then know this, there's about to be a breakthrough and he knows it. So he's doing all he can do to get you to quit just before that finish line. It's often precisely because we're following God and serving him that things heat up. But I want you to know this. Yes, you have an enemy. Yes, he is hell-bent on your destruction. Yes, you might feel like he's having a heyday with your life right now. But his power is limited. He never, ever gets all that he wants. He is on a leash. He can only go so far. I wonder if you've ever uttered the phrase, what if, what if, like if you've looked at your past and you've looked with regret and you've just thought, what if, what if this had been different? What if that had happened for me? What if this had not been so awful? Usually we use this phrase, what if, and we're talking about something with regret. But what if we used that same phrase and used it in a different way? What if we used it in the spirit that it is used in Psalm 124, the song of ascent, a different kind of what if. Because what this psalm is saying over and over again is if it had not been the Lord on our side, what if? If it had not been the Lord on our side, dot, 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 what might have happened? How many times has God come through for you and you haven't even noticed it? The car accident was averted. The child was protected. The temptation didn't come. The guardian angel stepped in. The possibilities are endless. And sentinels of the invisible look for those. They look for those times, for those what-ifs, where things could have gone very differently and God provided. You might feel that there are some circumstances in your life right now that are utterly out of control, but things would be so much worse if it had not been that the Lord is on your side. And what about your eternity? How would your eternity look if the Lord had not been on your side? I love these words from Bible teacher Beth Moore, and she writes, imagine standing on a battlefield all alone, and you're facing an angry army of a thousand men, each breathing torturous threats. And suddenly you feel the earth pounding beneath your feet. And it sounds as if it's the hoofbeats of 10,000 horsemen. Your heart nearly melts with fear as you prepare yourself for this ever-mounting foe. But then you realize it wasn't 10,000 horsemen coming towards you. It was actually one. And you lift your gaze higher as you try to focus on his face with the sun in your eyes. And he looks like he's a hundred feet tall on top of his stallion. And his very presence emanates authority. He is stunningly beautiful. Staggeringly powerful. His horse gallops onto the battlefield, kicking up the earth. And then the rider firmly pulls up the reins and brings his horse to a halt right next to you. And the horseman then looks down at you and he says, proceed into battle, mighty warrior. I am by your side. How does this apply to anxiety? Whatever you face, 
you do not face it alone. God has gone before you. And he's gone before you knowing ahead of time the mistakes that you were going to make. Knowing ahead of time the bad luck that was going to come your way. Knowing ahead of time the things that were going to go wrong. But he has nevertheless fixed your future. Which means that he is bigger than your failures. You are not creative enough, big enough, or messed up enough to undo the work that he is doing. He has an absolutely unlimited capacity to fix things. So it is time to get our eyes out of our circumstances and to get our eyes in to scripture and then to get our eyes up to the one enthroned above. Lift your eyes to heaven because God's eyes are already right now in this moment fixed on you. God is on your side. He is fighting for you right now. Even as you sit here, he is at work. It isn't all up to you. It's up to him. And he is up to the job. And finally, perspective number three. Good can come from anxiety. What on earth is good about it? This thing that we just wish God would swoop down and remove from our lives. What could be good about it? Well, for one thing, it gets our attention in a distracted and superficial world. It's a way that God can shout to us, all is not well. Something is blocking your peace. And once he has your attention, then God says, let's dive in together. I want to go on a pilgrimage with you into your heart because that's the place where I want to bring healing. So this is a stripping away that God is using to take us deeper in the spiritual life. It's alerting us to an area of our life where we have not relinquished control to him. It doesn't feel good. But that doesn't mean that it isn't, that it's pointless. And if we will surrender ourselves to him in the midst of the anxiety, it frees God to do something. It frees God to do surgery on your soul. What do you think that is, surgery on the soul? What am I talking about? Well, on our pilgrimage to heaven, our greatest desire should be to be a saint. Our greatest desire should be that every single day we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm very aware that I have a long way to go in that regard. And as we grow in the spiritual life and the Holy Spirit brings things to mind that needs to change, there are a lot of things that we can change when we combine our efforts, our self-discipline with the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot that can shift and change, a tremendous amount of spiritual maturity that can take place with your grit, your resolve, your good choices, and the Holy Spirit. But I don't know if any of you in this room deal with deeply rooted self-reliance. If you deal with deeply rooted self-reliance, I want to tell you, no amount of grit and resolve and a prayer here and there takes care of it because it's so deep. It's so deep in your soul that it's something that only God can dislodge and remove. So I've experienced this personally, 
And I have watched God perform this surgery of the soul on my husband as well. And it all started about four years ago with my husband Leo's prayer that God would make him more like Jesus. And I think maybe Leo thought he would go on a retreat and that would be great and that would do the trick. Or maybe read a really good book or maybe pick one character trait that he could work on for the year. But God had other plans. God took him at his word. He said, do you want to become like me? Are you ready to go on a journey? You're ready to go on a pilgrimage into your heart? So God's plan was that the transformation was not going to happen through a retreat. It was actually going to happen in a very different way. And Leo began to have panic attacks, more panic attacks than we could count. They were all day long. They were all night long, so neither of us were getting any sleep. The anxiety was truly debilitating. It was the darkest thing that my husband has ever walked through, and he's walked through a lot. And it lasted 40 days to the day. And during that time, Leo had no choice but to let go, and he chose to grasp hold of God. I want you to know that doubts swirled around him. It was super hard to hold to God in that time, but he did. He kept putting himself physically in God's presence at Mass in adoration, even though he didn't feel anything, begging God for healing. And he came out the end of those 40 days truly a different man. There was a profound change in his level of trust in God and his ability to let go of control, and it was remarkable. And I really felt like, good, we're done. That's enough holiness, right? Do you ever get like that? You're like, that's as far as we need to go, right? Good enough. But a year later, the anxiety returned. And during that journey, many of those same lessons were being revisited, but at a deeper level. So what had been learned before wasn't abandoned. It's not like all of that was wasted. It was going deeper into Leo's soul. It was taking him to a place of greater transformation. But something started happening in me at that time. Fear began to really grow in my heart. My fear over his anxiety, when it all would end, what it was going to cost our family, And it just skyrocketed. But we did weather the storm, and eventually things did go back to normal. And sometime I began praying earnestly, fervently, that God would make me a saint. That he would uproot the things in my heart that hold me back from fully surrendering to him. Have you done that before, where you just go before the crucifix and you're like, I I just give you all my garbage. Like, you just do it. You just do it. Like, I've tried all my best tricks. (laughs) You know, I'm doing all the right stuff, but there is still something deep-seated where I, I'm relying on me, and my trust in you is limited, and I just begged him to do that in me. Um, you will probably not be surprised to hear that a few months later, Leo's anxiety returned, and Leo leaned into it. It was excruciating for him, but he fought He went to daily mass. He began reading his Bible so much more than normal. He prayed. He anointed himself with holy water. He went to priests. He asked for prayer. He released control. You know, my husband, Leo, if you were to meet him, if you had the privilege of meeting him, he is one of the brightest and most capable people that I know. There is nothing that he can't do, that he can't fix, that he can't figure out. So don't you think it's possible that with a man like him, God was going to have to disable some of that self-reliance in order to really be able to work in his heart? 
No, I don't claim to understand the mind of God. But I do know that through that stripping down that I witnessed in my husband, Leo's prayer of four years ago has been absolutely answered through the anxiety. I have witnessed him becoming more like Jesus. But Leo's journey with anxiety revealed something about my heart. I really, really, really like to be in control. And there's nowhere I like to be in control more than of my family. Remember the watchmen on the walls? When my trumpet blast weren't answered as I expected, and anxiety truly appeared to me in those darkest moments, appeared to me to be destroying my family. I became anxious, and then I moved from anxiety to just feeling nothing, feeling empty, feeling discouraged, feeling dark. And I wonder if some of you sitting here today, that's where you are. It just feels like nothing. I'm going to tell you something. In that moment, and maybe this is where you're at today, it all felt pointless, the whole thing. It didn't matter what Bible verse you would have quoted to me at that time. I already probably had it memorized. It felt pointless. It felt like it was a storm that was just going to bring destruction for no other reason than to bring destruction. But regardless of how it felt, what I kept saying is Jesus I trust in you. Take care of everything. Jesus, I trust in you. Take care of everything. And I surrendered the whole mess to him. And it wasn't until I was pulling out the other end of it that I started counting the days of when it had begun. And wouldn't you know, it was 40 days to the day. And my spiritual director explained to me that there are some times that God does some major operating on our hearts. And in order to do that, he has to numb us. That's why the feelings are absent. He has numbed us. And in that time, we can start to worry that we've lost our faith. But he's actually at work, and he's actually doing the deepest work, and he's actually answering the deepest prayers that we have prayed. And part of the healing work he's doing is he is teaching us that we don't need to be in control. We can just love. Let me say that again. You don't need to be in control. You can just love. And when he performs this work on the soul, what's happening is we're becoming more and more passive. We're just sitting there, right? But he is becoming more and more active. And this is where God truly takes over. And he, in a sense, says, get behind me. I've got you. I am going to battle for you. So what was God teaching me? He was actually helping me to make sense of things that I believe but not understood in a super deep way. So I think of the quote from St. Therese of Lisieux, our patron saint, when she says, Now it is abandonment alone that guides me. I have no other compass. I want nothing but what he wants. It's what he desires that I want. Do you remember the fullness of the quote? She actually says, If I were offered the choice, I would choose nothing because I want only what he wants. Now, I've read that quote, I've memorized that quote, I've taught on that quote, but deep in my heart, I've been a little bit like, really, St. Therese? Um, You were offered the choice. (laughs) Like, if you were offered the choice, he's kind of saying, either way, 
either way, it's going to work out okay. And you would literally say, I choose nothing. I'm like, I always know what I choose. Like, I could tell you at any given moment. But truly, she had come to love abandonment, to think, I don't trust myself enough to make the choice because it's so often through the very hard thing that I would not have chosen that the greatest good has come. And so what I have found to be true is I've understood that in a deeper way are the words of Hosea 2.16, which says, The Lord works in those he leads to the desert. And he leads you to the desert to speak to your heart. And I believe that all that Leo and I are walking through, because we are still walking through this in many ways, was an answer to both of our prayers to become more like Christ. And the anxiety the fear or the anxiety, far from being something that I should have feared, was actually the vehicle that was going to take me where I needed to go. Now, I will say the ride has not been pleasant, but in God's providence, it is carrying us where I've actually asked to be brought. So when anxiety crops up, I stop and I evaluate. These might be questions you would like to write down for yourself when you face something similar. Question number one, what is it right now that my will is so attached to? What is it right now that my will is so attached to? What is it that I'm just wanting so much? Question number two, can I release this to God? Can I release this to God? Number three, Can I trust that he is in control, that he is on the battlefield, that he is already fighting for me and those I love? And number four, can I accept that if this circumstance is happening, God knew it and he is already in the future making it all okay? Can I accept that if this circumstance is happening, he knew it, and he is already in the future, making it okay? So this isn't a time for us to try to figure it all out, which is always our temptation. The good in our anxiety is that it's an alert that I need to release something to God. It's like, I'm anxious. Ooh, what is it? What is it? I need to release something to God here. I've just been alerted of that. And the best response immediately is, Jesus, I trust in you. Take care of everything. And this will allow us to say hallelujah anyway. Hallelujah in the struggle. Hallelujah in the numbness. Hallelujah in the anxiety. Hallelujah in the darkness. Hallelujah. Because our God is in control. And in these few moments that remain, I want to pray with you. And I want to declare some truth of scripture over you. And the reason why I'm doing this is because there is nothing more powerful than God's words. So my words and the words of a speaker and author might inspire. They might hit the mark. But I'll tell you what my words will never do. They will never create reality. I cannot speak something into being, but God can. That's exactly what his word does. It brings something out of nothing. It brings the change that we so desire. 
And we are promised by the prophet Isaiah that God's word never goes out void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. So my sisters in Christ, I declare over you today that you are strong and steadfast. Have no fear or dread of them, for the Lord your God who marches with you will never leave you or fail you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.6 I declare that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.7 I declare that you do not need to fear, for God is with you. Do not be anxious. He is your God. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you by his righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10 And I declare that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 I declare that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. I declare that God sits enthroned over the floods. He sits enthroned as king forever, and he gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Psalm 29, 10, and 11. And I declare that for freedom, Christ has set you free so that you can stand firm and refuse to submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 I declare that you dwell in the shelter of the Lord Almighty. You abide in the shadow of the Lord Most High. You can say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will rescue you from the fowler's snare, from the destroying plague. He will shelter you with his pinions. And under his wings, you may take refuge, because his faithfulness is a protecting shield. Psalm 91. And I declare that this slight momentary affliction is preparing for you, my sister, a weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians four seventeen and 18. And I declare that God has declared peace for you. Isaiah 26, 12. And I declare that God, Jehovah Shalom, our Lord, you are our peace. Judges 6, 24, will you pray with me? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we trust in you. Take care of everything. Jesus, we trust in you. Take care of everything. Jesus, we trust in you. Take care of everything. Our Lady, endure of knots, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.